millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Over recent episodes of Policy Forum Pod, we've been talking with some incredible guests about climate change in the lead-up to the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. So do check out some of the degree programs and short courses that we have on offer. There's an amazing array of things that you can come and study with us. You can find that information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And I am here today once again with my pod buddy, Anagreta Hunter. Hi, Anagreta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine here at the ANU. Anagreta, we've had some fantastic conversations in the lead up to COP26. We've talked through some of the climate science, as well as issues around health, economic and security implications of climate change. As Mark Howden pointed out, there is no longer any debate among scientists around climate change. And that was made very clear in the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Nor is there any serious debate around the urgency of the situation. Climate change is affecting and will continue to affect more significantly our lives at every level. And it's having a dramatic impact on this beautiful planet that we call home and on all forms of life on our planet. With extreme temperatures and catastrophic weather events becoming more common, we have seen in Australia the devastating bushfires of 2019-2020. We've seen flooding and violent storms. This threat is real and we are experiencing it. But for our neighbours in the Pacific, the threats are even greater and there is so much more at stake. The Pacific Island region is perhaps the most vulnerable to impacts of climate change anywhere in the world. The prospect of rising sea levels is a matter of survival for many of the islands across this region. So today on the pod, we're going to be talking through just what climate change means for the region and what we might hope out of COP26. And we have two excellent guests to help us do that. But before we introduce our guests, 
We just wanted to point out that we recorded this episode last week and both of our guests are now at COP negotiating as part of the delegations and it's a real privilege to have them on the show to share their insights. And Anna Greta, we've had some incredible conversations over the past couple of weeks leading into this conversation today about the Pacific. We really have. We've had we've got some extraordinary expertise around the region and very generously shared perspectives from our colleagues both at ANU and elsewhere. Frank Jotso and Mark Howden last week particularly really stuck with me for, for some days afterwards. It's an episode that we'll we'll I'm no doubt we'll come back to. I'm always struck by by speaking with those two about the impacts of climate change and, and look the practical solutions that are there for us to try and solve this. Sharon, we should again acknowledge that we're report recording this remotely uh, and apologise again for the audio quality. It's not quite the same as working together in the studio. And we do apologise if there's incidental noises that occur from time to time on the soundtrack. Uh, we're hoping to be back together in the next couple of weeks. We don't hear enough about what the impacts of the climate change in the Pacific. It's one of the most important stories that's out there. And we have two extraordinary guests joining us today. Siobhan McDonnell is a senior lecturer here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. She's currently the chief investigator for the Australian Research Council's Discovery Project on Climate Change and Gender in the Pacific, which has been running from 2018 to 2023. She's also previously held the role from 2019 and 2020 of Vanuatu's lead negotiator at international forums for climate change and regional political issues. Siobhan's research is primarily focused on applied work in Indigenous Australia and Oceania around the politics of climate change and disaster, land rights and gender. It's great to have you with us, Siobhan. Thank you very much for joining us. And beside Siobhan is George Carter. George is a research fellow in geopolitics and regionalism at the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. He's director of the ANU Pacific Institute. His research primarily focuses on understanding small states and people's influence in decision-making processes in international politics. Prior to coming to Australia for study, he was the political advisor at the US Embassy in Apia, Samoa. Thank you so much for joining us today, George. The IPCC report published in August of this year warned that the Earth is warming faster than previously estimated, and it also warned us of the dire consequences of delaying decisive action. What was the the effect of that report in the Pacific? I might start with you, George. Thank you. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of wherever you're joining in this podcast. I am joining from Ngambri and Nanabo land, and I acknowledge this past and present. Thank you very much for that question on the impact of IPCC uh, report that just was released. This is nothing new to the Pacific. Um, as uh, leaders throughout the Pacific have ascertained through uh, their media speeches and as well as through uh, various different work around policy uh, and their NDCs, this has been something that Pacific Islands have been lobbying since the beginning of the UNFCC back in 1990, that it, the, the signs are detrimental. Uh, they are existential threat to the livelihoods, uh, the security and the well-being of Pacific people. And what the IPCC report uh, tells is that the future is becoming uh, less and less um, 
viable for many uh, Pacific Islands, especially low coral atoll nations. Um, there will be substantial need uh, in terms of not only adapting, but the loss or maladaptation that will happen uh, in the coming future um, as the science uh, will. And this has created more momentum uh, right across the Pacific uh, in making sure that uh, COP26 delivers on uh, a very ambitious uh, work program for the Paris Agreement, but also uh, more uh, climate ambition from all nations, I mean, in the future. It's a really profound framing, I think, that that phrase, less viable. Uh, we've been talking on previous episodes about habitability and the challenges that climate change might face uh, in terms of human habitability. Siobhan, could you give us your thoughts on the IPCC report and the way in which it's impacted in the work that you've been doing with the communities in the Pacific? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I too would like to acknowledge that I'm coming today from Ngunnawal and Nambri land. I think George has given a really beautiful uh, beginning of an answer there. And, and what I'd like to say is that, you know, there's a, a real resonance across the Pacific around this idea of of 1.5 to stay alive. You know, there's a there's a incredible momentum around Pacific diplomacy. George writes beautifully about this. The whole range of Pacific scholars do. Um, there's this incredible momentum around the Climate Vulnerable Forum. There's a, a real urgency. There's movements around Tuvalu and coral atoll nations, but there's movements across the Pacific around the urgency attached to ways of life and livelihood. You know, the space that I negotiate in is loss and damage. I've had the privilege of of negotiating in that space for Vanuatu this time. I'll be negotiating for Fiji because Vanuatu will not be sending a negotiating delegation. And and really there's an urgency around saying for countries this is not just an issue of adaptation. Beyond There are issues of beyond adaptation, the material and non-material aspects of loss and damage caused by climate change impacts are tangible and real. They are the actual costs that are borne now and into the future by Pacific Island nations, by people in terms of cultural, spiritual loss of place, loss of aspects of culture, loss of aspects of burial grounds, loss of attachment to place. These are real and tangible impacts on people's ways of life. And and this is what is up for grabs right now. This is the urgency that people are attending COP26 with. Siobhan, Pacific Island countries have in the past had a major influence in negotiating for climate change reduction. And this was particularly true of the Paris Agreement, where diplomats from the Pacific played a key role in achieving that global consensus. And I think what you've just said explains so powerfully why this matters and the ways in which that argument plays out in the Pacific. But I wonder if you could also talk us through the strategies that Pacific leaders and representatives have used in the past to influence those global agreements. I can speak briefly to this, but uh, George is incredibly well-placed to speak on this as well, um, given his body of work. I mean, these are really strategies about speaking to the fact that the Pacific is, is really one of the most climate-impacted regions in the world. I mean, you're looking at a region where people are overwhelmingly living uh, lives that are impact going to be radically altered by sea level, where you're looking at a region where is overwhelmingly uh, 
many of the countries are right in the top of the of the world's risk index most riskiest countries in the world in terms of disaster impacts they're constantly impacted by cyclones um, we know that that cyclones increase in terms of the impact related to cyclones we know that coral is threatened in the in the most recent versions of the IPCC reports. We know that there are implications for tuna fisheries as a resource. Uh, We know that there are massive implications for oceans and the Pacific holds a third of the world's oceans. We know that coral atoll islands are incredibly impacted as a result of climate change and so there are massive issues of climate migration and displacement that need to be grappled with. We know that um, for all of these reasons, the the Pacific is incredibly impacted by these sets of issues. These are, are, so when George speaks to the fact that the recent IPCC report and and the global science consensus is nothing new, this is what he means. These are people's daily realities. So going forward then, this is what the Pacific brings when it speaks. It is this moral culpability of holding the world to account of the daily impacts and the way that climate change impacts people's lives and their way of lives. Even though as a region, this region emits almost no carbon emissions. So this is really the region that holds the world's attention in terms of the implications of climate justice. And it's Indigenous peoples globally, but it's the Pacific as a region that bring that argument to the fore. The Pacific and the Caribbean, when they speak, speak with that authority. George, you were there in in Paris. Would you like to share with us some of the strategies that that you and others from the Pacific used in, in those negotiations? How Pacific Island states or leaders and negotiators influence multilateral climate change negotiations is a core aspect of my uh, work, as uh, Shivon alluded to. And part of that examination is exploring how uh, the strategies, but also the transactional behavior of diplomats and negotiators inside these meetings in real time uh, occur. And so Shivon uh, rightly attested to, to one of these strategies is how Pacific Island states use their moral authority. They use or they, this, the narrative of vulnerability that people uh, and country and state and societies are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. This provides a platform for which uh, not only statesmen, but also media and international uh, citizens are able to then listen to these voices of peoples, communities, and states at the front line of climate impacts. But that's just one of many different strategies. Pacific Island states, as well as um, Caribbean and Indian and um, uh, Mediterranean Ocean countries, which form the Alliance of Small Island States, were at the forefront of making sure that climate change becomes a global issue, that it becomes, that there leads to a treaty, which led to UNFCCC that there is a regime, uh, that there is Kyoto Protocol. These were strategies in ensuring that it becomes not only just a global campaign, but a treaty with a regime in itself. And this is one of the testaments of 
30 years of not just small states, but Pacific Island states' contribution to the current international political system or uh, international system that we are living in today as part of uh, international rule-based order. Is that attention on environmental impacts, um, the attention on the impact of climate change, not just on environments, but on society as a whole, and how they work together in making sure this campaign. These are countries uh, with very small budgets, low capacity in terms of uh, diplomacy, in terms of travel, uh, funding to these meetings, yet they give it their all. And that is through because what I call uh, multi-actor partnerships, that it's not just uh, officials and their diplomats working in various posting, working on these issues. They team up with academics like Siobhan, uh, like myself, academics uh, in various different universities that can provide these uh, research support from the back. They work with international lawyers who work pro bono or they have special agreement to provide that legal expertise behind. They work with science. Uh, universities provide that scientific uh, back, but also uh, think tanks, whether it be in Germany, whether they be in, uh, in New York, in Columbia University, or whether they be in University of South Pacific USB. They provide that scientific support. Then they work with regional organizations, inter-organizations to provide that diplomatic support, how to be instinctive, uh, how to be decisive in the process. Because as we all know, COP is not just a political uh, negotiation. There's the expo, uh, it's the science, uh, knowledge, brokerage, community coming together. Um, and of course, you have the high level political uh, uh, negotiations as well. And so this multi-actor partnership of countries working together with various different actors, you know, form this, um, uh, what I call the core group of uh, strategists uh, that actually control the narrative of the Pacific, of the climate change, not only in the Pacific region, but globally. Um, and so they're not just officials within the Ministry of Natural Resources. These are academics. These are NGOs. Uh, students from University of South Pacific who uh, work during the negotiations to try and deliver the message uh, and making sure that uh, what's been negotiated uh, is accountable and it serves um, uh, the needs of uh, Pacific Island states. And of course, finally, is working with coalitions. You know, they're being instinctive in terms of working with global South coalitions like G77, LDC, uh, least developed countries, but they're also instrumental in having their own island-owned uh, uh, coalitions such as AOSIS. What we've seen since 2014 is that movements beyond just working with the global South coalitions, but now working with the North. So you have countries like uh, Marshall Islands in creating the high ambition coalition that it's not just working with partners from the global South, but it's also working with partners from the North. Uh, like the European Union. And so this is um, one of these contributions. Of. The Pacific's premier intergovernmental body, the Pacific Islands Forum, faced an unprecedented crisis earlier this year as five Micronesian countries announced their intention to leave the organisation. Given that the Pacific Islands countries have in the past sought to present a united front in international climate negotiations, will this division have an effect at COP26? So I think uh, there are really two parts to that answer. One is that 
there is a broader set of discussions around the Pacific Island Forum and and what direction the Pacific Island Forum needs to head in. And I think there's a regional conversation that needs to happen and there's an ongoing discussion around how Australia particularly positions itself in the Pacific given how it is recognised around climate change. And there is some movement on that issue in Australia at the moment. So that's one issue and, you know, obviously I have a particular set of thoughts around that um, given the negotiations at two, in Tuvalu in 2019 and the Kainaki Lua declaration that came out of that. However, that doesn't change really uh, the way the region will position itself in, in COP26 negotiations. So there are particular sets of relationships that parts of the region have and have facilitated for a long time. So the Micronesian states, for example, have a, a very close relationship with the US and that will come very much into play at COP26. There are regional alliances that play out specifically, but essentially what the Pacific will do is it will gather together very strongly and it will articulate a very strong set of positions around a 1.5 degree strategy around the need for climate finance commitments, around nationally determined commitments and targets. And that block set of commitments will be pushed for through the Pacific nations. And then how Australia and New Zealand align has always been a difficult issue in COP negotiations. So what we have found and what we found from Kainaki Lua, from the 2009 Tuvalu Declaration out, then to the Madrid discussions, was that what Australia was messaging in regional discussions, they weren't necessarily taking forward into COP negotiations. So having that kind of from Pacific Island Forum discussion out into COP negotiations was one of the things that we worked very hard at from Madrid out. And that is something that Australia needs to be very conscious of, is that it cannot message into the region one set of conversations and do a kind of double speak in international negotiations because the Pacific leadership is listening. They are listening to what Australia is saying. It cannot say one message to a domestic audience around coal and fossil fuels and another message into the Pacific and, and message a Pacific family kind of set of ideas. This is a, you know, this is a very complex set of diplomatic issues for Australia because the Pacific leadership have constantly articulated the idea that climate change is the greatest security challenge in the Pacific. And that has come through repeatedly through Pacific Island Forum declarations. Yeah, please, George. Yep. Uh, the disagreement uh, within the Pacific Island Forum amongst the leaders um, and the countries uh, around uh, with the Micronesian split does not have an impact in the work leading up to COP26. In fact, it encourages, there's more even a more profound work uh, in collaboration with the Micronesian countries, uh, with the rest of the South, uh, Melanesian micro, uh, and Polynesian countries. This is articulated through uh, the strategy and the work of uh, countries leading up to COP. Under the One Crop uh, Plus initiative since 2014, 
regional organizations pull together not only just the 14 uh, independent states who are party to the negotiations, but also uh, the various different territories in creating messages or strategies leading up to and technical briefs and trainer negotiations leading up to the meetings. And that has been ongoing for the last uh, nine months. Uh, right now, uh, the technical negotiators are on their way uh, to Glasgow uh, to start the work uh, in the coming week. And so this is a combination of one crop plus uh, in training negotiators on the issues and how to participate uh, within the process. Beyond that, there's another level above, which is called the Pacific Political Champions. And here, um, five leaders have been identified to carry that strong voice of the key messages from the Pacific. So the five champions come in the form of uh, champion in finance, which is the Deputy Prime Minister of Fiji, uh, Mr. Ayers. Uh, who's the Minister of Economy, as well as uh, Cook Islands. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, the area of loss and damage, you have uh, Prime Minister, uh, Minister of Finance from Tuvalu uh, joining, uh, leading that cause. In the area of environmental integrity, on the issue of Article 6, you have Palau's Minister of Environment leading that front. In the area of climate ambition, you have the Republic of Marshall Islands, who have been undertaking this work for the last five years, um, but especially this year. And, you know, of relevance to this group, it will be the Minister of Health. And so he will be pursuing not only uh, ambitious targets uh, at work, uh, commitment, um, contributions from all parties, but I know he'll have a special uh, role in terms of promoting the issue of climate health for the Pacific. And these champions are tasked to speak at the plenary level, at the public level, at, uh, at, at to be the faces of, uh, of uh, Pacific messages. As we know, many uh, countries are not sending leaders because of COVID travel restrictions or are unable to find connecting flights to get there in time. And so these five leaders, as well as the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, as well as the Prime Minister of Fiji, who are able to attend, these seven leaders will drive pretty much the political messaging at that high level for the uh, Pacific coming into COP26. George, there are a number of things there that we would like to to delve into just a little further, but I think this is a perfect time for us to take a very short break and we will return in just a moment to continue this conversation around the role of the Pacific Island states at COP26. So listeners, don't go away. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Siobhan McDonnell and George Carter 
talking about climate change, the Pacific, and the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Siobhan, just before the break, um, George noted that there will be a number of countries in from the Pacific that won't be represented at the COP26 summit due to COVID restrictions and the difficulties of, of getting flights and flight connections. Um, so a number of governments won't be there. There'll also be a number of non-government organisations and civil society organisations who have been so essential to that coalition that has been there in the past who won't be able to attend. Siobhan, what impact is this likely to have on the Pacific Island country strategy and the way in which conversations play out at COP? I think it's really important that people understand that the Pacific, as, as George and I have been highlighting, are extraordinary actors in these processes and they have got this long and proud history of really extraordinary diplomacy. So in my space of, of loss and damage, for example, the Pacific has been instrumental in actually creating um, UNFCCC loss and loss and damage spaces, so calling for loss and damage to be opened up as a space within the UNFCCC and then instrumentally creating that um, as a space across time along with other small island states um, and the AOSIS kind of block of countries. But the UN process, I mean, no one should kid themselves that it's fair or that it's equal. There are some countries that bring enormous delegations into the process that are incredibly well financed, that have incredible capacity, that have teams of lawyers, that have teams of negotiators. So, I mean, I obviously I'm an Australian, I am a lawyer, and I really see my role in this process. Um, I have this kind of incredible honour of supporting Pacific Island nations in this process. And I, you know, I go to COP to try and support the capacity and I particularly make that decision this year because I think it is even more unfair than usual. And that's in part because it is doubly difficult this time around. There are huge issues with COVID and I don't think we should underestimate the scale of COVID that's present in the UK at the moment. There is a likelihood that COP will be a super spreader event. So there are delegations and there are countries. Um, there is, you know, my my usual country of Vanuatu uh, who have made the decision not to send a delegation because they cannot wear the risk of COVID coming back into Vanuatu where there's very poor health infrastructure. And and these are terrible decisions to have to weigh up, right? You know, going and negotiating for, you know, for better climate outcomes versus the chance of bringing COVID back into your country. Um, it's a really poor set of decision-making risks. We're also talking about countries that in the period since one COP and another, 2019 till now, have borne the, borne the impacts of economies that have, have been hugely impacted by declines in tourism sectors across a lot of the Pacific, COVID impacts across a lot of countries, 
these huge and vast impacts that Pacific leaders are, are grappling with right now. And, and so they're having to weigh up all of those impacts and make choices around attending or not attending. A lot of Pacific leaders have a lot of health complications themselves and so can't actually risk attending COP. And so all of those factors are brought to bear around decision-making right now and they all have impacts around the delegations that are being sent. And, and that means that when you look at who is there, when you look at who is represented, when you look at the scale of delegations that are coming from various countries, you must also look at who the United Nations is, right? Who gets to send large and vast delegations full of negotiators, full of lawyers, um, and who doesn't? And George has already raised this issue of capacity. And I think what you need to understand about this story of Pacific diplomacy is it really is a David and Goliath story. You know, what the Pacific region has achieved across time is incredible, you know. It is really an incredible story of international diplomacy and they will go to COP this year and they will also achieve extraordinary things. But it's extraordinary things relative to the scale of what they're negotiating against. And that is true of the global south. These processes are not fair. And, and it's, almost, it's almost achieving outcomes in spite of what the process sets up against you and in spite of the capacity of what other countries are able to bring. That's such an important discussion, Siobhan. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. And I know we're all very much looking forward to hearing the Pacific Island voice loudly at COP26. George, would you take us through what you see as the best case outcome for the Pacific Island countries from the COP26 process that's ahead? Uh, heading into uh, COP26, there's quite a list of key outcomes for which Pacific Island states uh, and the various different coalitions for which they belong to are looking forward to accomplish at COP26. Of course, uh, they are going in, uh, into these negotiations with great spirit, uh, just like everyone, uh, every party within UNFCCC to finalize the Paris rulebook. Of great importance to the Pacific is on the area of markets, uh, Article 6. Although Pacific Island states may not uh, be able to uh, participate uh, globally within these global mar carbon markets once they're finalized. But what is important here is in the area of environmental integrity, that the rules do remain and are consistent with the original UNFCCC, uh, especially that it does uh, so that other uh, bigger nations do not create loopholes where they're able to report uh, accounting in these markets uh, that do not progress as forward to meeting or reaching 1.5. And so this is very important to negotiate from the Pacific is that it keeps negotiators, especially from those who will be participating in carbon markets and non-market mechanisms on their toes that the rules uh, uh, are firm. Secondly, in the area of uh, NDCs, uh, stronger commitments by all countries by 2030 
and especially uh, uh, going towards or reaching um, targets around carbon neutrality by 2050, if not sooner. There's greater calls for transparency in the uh, delivery of existing $100 billion in terms of uh, climate finance. Of course, uh, they will be going in strong in terms of the uh, post-2020 quantitative climate finance target that it builds on the $100 billion. But the $100 billion is just the floor. It needs to go on and be progressive. Uh, increased allocation of climate, uh, climate finance for adaptation and resilience building. And of course, making sure that loss and damage, the area which Siobhan is working on, has a dedicated set of finance. Uh, and easier access to what's known as the Santiago Network of Techno Experts on Loss and Damage for Pacific Island states. And something that's very close to all countries within the region uh, is the area of oceans. Ensuring that the AUNFCCC brings on board or takes on board oceans as a matter of priority. And this is something we're all excited about uh, since the last COP25 was able to usher in a COP decision that acknowledges the linkage and the importance of why ocean is important too within the UNFCCC. And this is somewhere uh, the, the Pacific will want to progress. But that doesn't mean health, uh, traditional knowledge, uh, science, um, as well as uh, various aspects of agriculture, food are not important to the Pacific. They are. These are very important. But in terms of the current work that's put forth in the area of uh, finalizing the rubble, these are some of the key positions. It will continue to take on the rest of the other messages along and its negotiation in ensuring that there are easier access for Pacific Island countries to these resources uh, and mechanisms that will be available globally, uh, but also uh, in terms of partnerships uh, for member countries to assist various different facets of climate change within the Pacific. Siobhan, give your thoughts on the best outcomes for Pacific Island countries from COP26. So George has just done a really great job of discussing what I think those are. Um, he has. And I, I would just echo what he has discussed because they're, I mean, that that's really the play. I think the discussion is not net zero by 2050. I think we're way beyond that. I think it's about thinking around 2030, really meaningful 2030 targets. Um, so the UN has described what they are. Um, it's beyond 40%, 50% commitments, and and they have got to be on the table. I think for the Pacific it is really about climate finance and it's about looking, it's not just Pacific, it's about um, all of the incredibly impacted nations, uh, particularly the Oasis block of countries, the small island states that are incredibly impacted repeatedly by um, climate impacted disasters. Uh, so looking, and then in, in my space, in the loss and damage space, it's how you operationalize that. How do you actually get climate financing for loss and damage? How do you, how do you get a network that will, um, mean that countries can access climate finance in a meaningful way, not just for disaster related events that cause material damage? but for all of these other impacts attached to loss and damage that seem to be somehow unquantifiable. So the things that Pacific Island nations want to see made meaningful, what about cultural impacts from loss of access to place? What about the impacts of loss of ancestral place, of loss of 
of loss of access to burial grounds. At what point in time do Pacific Island nations start to see the real impacts that they're facing from climate-related disaster being properly compensated through some of these schemes? Siobhan and George, this has been an incredible conversation and you have mapped out so clearly both what is at stake for the Pacific but also what we can perhaps hope to see coming out of the conversations at COP26. We could continue this conversation for a very long time, but we will need to draw it to a close. And in doing that, could I ask each of you for the number one piece of advice that you would like to give to policymakers from outside the Pacific, and perhaps particularly from Australia, as we go into COP26. Uh, Siobhan, perhaps you would like to to comment briefly on that first. So (laughs) my advice to Australian um, negotiators is times are changing, you know, and I know that this is not a negotiator decision. It's It's a political decision. But I think the Australian government is in a quandary at the moment. I think we will see movement. I I genuinely feel optimistic in this space. Let's see what happens by the time the podcast goes to air. But Australia is absolutely out of step with the international community. We look like an international pariah. Um, I don't think our Prime Minister can go to COP without a serious set of commitments. So let's see if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But I think Australia is is going to alter in this space. And George, could we perhaps close with your advice to policymakers from from outside the Pacific, but but again, perhaps particularly to policymakers in Australia? I mean, within the world of negotiators, uh, especially UNF, uh, UNFCCC negotiators, there's already a family of of negotiators who know each other, who recognise each other's work, and also the national positions. What I'm saying here, Pacific Island states. Uh, negotiators already have worked with Australian, US, Japanese negotiators for the last 30 years. And so this is a continuation of their work. Leading up to COP26, especially in the crunch, uh, last, uh, we'll, we look forward to the last few days and where to finalize uh, these agreements. Uh, it's all about good faith, transparency, and it's about open communication. We do not want something that happened in Cope, uh, Copenhagen where decisions were made by a small group of countries, uh, such as the G20. It needs to be an open, transparent uh, system of decision-making and consensus decision-making. Of course, there will be loss and gains by parties because that's how multilateral uh, consensus decision-making is made. It's about not getting what you will uh, you want in the beginning. It's about the compromise. It will be about less about agreements, but it's about choosing less to dis- what not to disagree about and continue forward. But essentially, we hope uh, for everyone that these are ambitious targets that uh, keep to environmental integrity, uh, that reach 1.5 or address 1.5, so that you know we see a better tomorrow. That's the hope that negotiators and leaders we all want uh, going into you know, open, transparent process, but also very ambitious and that we try and reach that one point, uh, reach that 1.5 target as much as possible. 
Ishaba McDonald, George Carter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your your expertise, your insights and your wisdom and for sharing a view from the Pacific. Uh, by the time this episode goes to where you will both be in Glasgow and we wish you both all the very best in those discussions at COP26 and thank you for joining us today. Our pleasure. <laughs> Let's hope we have something good to report back on the other side. <laughs> thank you. Well, we might get you back to talk about it, Siobhan. That would be great. Thank you. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation. As I mentioned at the beginning, the story of the way in which climate change is affecting the Pacific Islands needs to be heard loudly and clearly. And we've had such an extraordinary demonstration of that today from George and from Siobhan. Um, that catchphrase, 1.5 to stay alive, I'm going to use and I'm going to use it regularly. Uh, and I really do hope the two of them do ha- have, a, have a successful period at COP26 in Glasgow starting today. What were your thoughts? Yeah, we wish them both all the, the very best while they're at COP. There were two things that really struck me from, from that conversation. And one is the extraordinary leadership that the Pacific has played in global discussions around climate change. And as you say, Anna Greta, we often don't hear enough about that. But hearing George talk about those webs of coalitions and, um, and, networks for change that the Pacific has been engaged in leading for many, many years is just so powerful. And the other thing that really struck me was when Siobhan was talking about what is at stake and what will be lost, you know, not just livelihoods and um, economic loss, but more particularly people's way of life, people's culture. And she mentioned a couple of times, you know, burial places, which are just so important for people in the Pacific. And there is just so much at stake here. And to me, that was such a powerful part of this conversation. Absolutely. For those who are still wondering if climate change is an existential risk, I think we've been given a framework that allows us to see that connection. Listeners, thank you for joining us throughout this series on uh, climate change, where we will continue to reflect on that COP process in the weeks ahead. We do love feedback. Reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. Policy Forum has a Facebook page and you can join that by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on whatever platform you pod with. We do read them and we take them seriously. As regular listeners may know, Policy Forum has been hosting a long-running in-focus section on the Pacific, featuring blogs from experts, including George Carter, on a diverse range of issues from climate change through to policing. So again, if you're interested in the Pacific more broadly, please check it out on policyforum.net. We will be back next week. So it's bye-bye from Anna Greta Hunter. We'll see you then. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.